If you have an interest in horses and love learning more about horses, the horse industry, teaching, or even managing your own horse business, then you're in the right place. We would love you to join us on our mission, which is to improve the lives of horses around the world through the education of riders, handlers, and trainers. So get comfortable, listen in, and enjoy. This is another of our popular Listener's Choice interviews, which we're playing over the weekend. We've chosen the most popular interviews for you to select the Listener's Choice winner. If you're not sure how the Listener's Choice competition works, have a look at horsechats.com slash choice for the rules and the leaderboard. Today's chat's been brought to you by International Horse College. International Horse College's motto is people safety and horse welfare, and you'll find this message throughout our chats. Registered Training Organisation number 31352. Today we're reintroducing Dr Andrew McLean. Now I say reintroducing because Andrew's already been a guest on episode 003. He was one of our very first guests. Recently, I caught up with him at the International Society at Equitation Science, and I'd like to talk to him about his 10 training principles for horses. How are you today, Andrew? I'm very well, thank you. Good. Andrew, can you give me a little bit of a background on these 10 training principles? Who should use them, how they came about, and um, is there any time that we would go away from these principles and not use them? Okay, yeah, that's a good question because... These principles are basic training principles that apply to all horses and you know, all our interactions with horses and any other animal that we train as well. Well, some of them are to do with riding, so it's obviously not going to be useful for a non-ridden animal, but they're basic training principles, which it's all about clarity and consistency in the end. And how they evolve was when I first started to explore this academically, I was doing my PhD and these principles arose from that. and. Then they first surfaced in the public arena in a book we wrote called Horse Training the McLean Way and then again in The Truth About Horses. And then Paul McGreevy at Sydney Uni and I decided we would formalise them in a scientific document. So we published them in a paper called The Roles of Learning Theory and Ecology in Horse Training. I think that was about 2006. And since then, we've always maintained that these are um, a work in progress, that they're not you know, they're not like the Ten Commandments that are there forever. And we're gradually refining them even more when we feel there's something we've got to add or even just to make them a little bit more digestible and understandable and perhaps to even them out so each ten has even weight. And at the moment, they don't quite, the first few are a little bit heavier than the others. But that's that's our mission. The principles themselves haven't changed. It's just, I guess, refining how we present them. Mm-hmm. Okay, so can I talk to you then about the first principle? We'll start off, train according to horses' ethology and cognition. Now, sometimes, and this is from a marketing point of view, we talk about horses. You know, we we talk about them, say, in a riding school. You know, you might say to a student, oh, your horse has really missed you. You know, so glad to see you today. Oh, they've been looking forward to you coming down for the ride. Or, um, you know, my horse... I was about to go out, I had my good clothes on, my horse snorted on me because he didn't want me to go out. Are these principles healthy, not healthy? Look, they're okay because in a way that speaks a lot about people's bond with horses and that's a good thing. Where it isn't such a good thing is if we have unrealistic expectations of the animal's mental ability. You know, like you can't 
actually project forward like we can or project back because the cells that we that we use to do so in the prefrontal cortex just don't exist in the horse's brain and you know and he never needed them anyway as a grazing animal because when you have this ability to think ahead and think back it actually corrupts your memory quite a lot because every time you think about something when it's no longer in your perceptive field you drag the memory out from storage and then you talk about it and then when you restore it, it gets altered a little bit, which is why human memory is so unreliable in a courtroom. And yet horses have an outstanding memory. And that's because they don't just think about them and put them back and they don't get corrupted by the context. A horse's memory is, is basically a trigger-based memory. So it gets triggered by certain things. For example, if a feed bucket means here comes food or the sound of your car or anything like that, that will bring up behavior that's associated with that particular thing. And the same with fear, if you hit the horse with a stick, he soon learns that the appearance of the stick means something bad. But the fact is he can't think about the stick while he's not seeing it. So where this is a problem is if people use delayed punishments and delayed rules, and they definitely do. I mean, you see it all the time. It's just, and it's even condoned to some extent in the rules, which it shouldn't be. You know, it should be completely forbidden that you ever hit a horse one or two seconds after it's refused. The jump because that just makes him more nervous and yes maybe he's likely to jump and people think it will work but that's just because any flighty animal is liable to jump anything but they don't jump it particularly well so i think we have to be careful that we don't overlay the horse's brain with our expectations as if they're just like us and therefore you can blame them for a lot of things i think we need to be better trainers mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that's the fact and the people are better trainers they get a better outcome Okay, okay. So the more that they understand about horses, the better trainer they're going to be. Yeah, and horses really, you know, they live in the moment and and we need to recognise that and they don't think ahead and think back and they don't need to reason like that because it's just never part of a grazing lifestyle. Mm-hmm. That grazers themselves collectively have never evolved. Okay. So we have to be careful how we think of them. The other principle, ethology, if I talk to that for a second um, because ethology just refers to the study of animal behavior and what ethology basically means from our point of view as horse trainers is it means we need to understand for example that the flight response is really strong in an animal like a horse you know he has a very insecure life in a sense that they're evolved to live on the open grassland, which is a dangerous place. You're always in view of the predator. Or the, you know, the predator knows where you are pretty much most of the time. So you need very good senses and responses. And the flight response is very strong in horses compared to many other animals. And once we trigger that, that can lead to dangerous problems. We also need to understand the horse's social structure. You know, people talk about, and it's so common, you hear it all the time, even people who should know better, um, vets talk about it sometimes, they talk about the horse's hierarchy, and the fact is there is no hierarchy, and it's never been seen by all the people who've studied all the different horses, you know, Assateague Island and the New Forest Pony and the Brumbies of Australia and the Kaimanawa Horse of New Zealand. No one's ever seen a hierarchy. What you see are complex social relationships where no horse is ever dominant over all of the others for all the resources. They're dominant for one resource, and each one only knows his dominance with respect to each of the other herd members. So it's not like A dominates B, dominates C, dominates D. D could well dominate A for food, but maybe not for space. 
you know, so it's it's very complicated. And that, again, is something that's perpetuated by the um, horse whispering myth, you know, that uh, therefore if you're the dominant one, the horse will respect you. And it doesn't, it's too simplistic. It doesn't work like that. It does mean that you've got to be careful of certain things. For example, you know, you don't let the horse displace you because if he moves you, he learns he can and that enables him to displace you more and take a free ride on that one. Mm-hmm. But um, it's of no place in training. Training is just about being very effective and that's why someone who's disabled can be more effective than a strapping cowboy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have to be careful about what training is and it's not about dominance or making an animal submissive. It's purely about arranging a response through reinforcement mm-hmm. and reinforcing the animal correctly. And when you use wrappings and legs, it's about removing the whip pressure or the leg pressure or the rein pressure at the right moment, in fact, instantly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's those sorts of things. And also just including the horse's need for socialization. You know, he's a social animal, so mm-hmm. it's really important to horses to, you know, if possible, to have social contact with other horses. They're just much better for it. They're less insecure. So mm-hmm. horses that are isolated tend to shy more. They tend also to be more vulnerable to if a tree branch falls down to run through a fence than if they're in a group. They also need to forage. You know, they're wired to forage for 13 hours a day. And that means they, if they have full access, even old hay that's not nutritious but just keeps them eating, it's mentally good for them. Mm-hmm. So those things are, you know, important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, we're going to go on to using learning theory appropriately. And the word, use of the words habituation, sensitization, operant conditioning, shaping, and classical conditioning, can you speak a little bit about them? Because if people haven't been exposed to these training principles, they won't really know what training principles, you know, if, if if this training is demonstrated, and if you give a bit of an example of when you would use each of those, it'd be good. Okay. To know the basics is pretty simple. You can go a lot further into the detail, and that increases your training efficiency. But the first one, habituation, just simply means getting used to something. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you want animals to become used to their environment, not shy from every little thing that moves and a plastic bag and the wind and all of those sorts of things, child on a bicycle. And so habituation refers to the animal's natural tendency to learn not to react to those things. How we use it in training is uh, the sensitization technique. So, you know, we can do fairly simple things like just simply hold the horse while he gradually gets used to things and we can teach him food rewards that this thing like the clippers going means he comes food straight away. So you turn the clips on, give food, turn the clips on, give food. You can also use a technique, a desensitization technique called overshadowing, where you step him forward and step him back with a lead rope, just with the lead rope pressure, while the clippers have turned on and off until he consistently steps back and forward really lightly as if the clippers weren't there. And then you bring them closer and closer and closer. And that's a very effective technique. I teach this to vets all around the world mm-hmm. because it's very good for habituating forces to injections as well as clippers and whatever. So that's habituation. Um, operant conditioning is really the big one, but it, from our point of view in training, it's just about using the pressure and release of the leg pressure and the rein pressure by the bit very effectively where, you know, we 
use the pressure to motivate the animal to give a response because he wants to remove it. And if he gives any response at all and we remove the pressure, we've trained that response or we at least have begun training that response. So we've got to really make sure that any pressures get released at the moment that is correct. And people are very bad at that typically until you teach them. So, for example, the way they use the whip, the most effective way is just using it in tapping, not one hard whack. Because one hard whack, if you want the horse to go forward, might cause him to shoot upwards or backwards or kick out. And if the pressure goes away, which it does after one hard whack, then the animal learns, oh, obviously leaping or kicking out is what removed it. So it's better to use it in a tapping motion and keep tapping until you get the answer and then remove it. And so that's the way you would do it to be an effective trainer. Then also, if we look at the other side of the coin, how we use uh, positive reinforcement. When we ride, if we scratch the horse at the base of the wither, there's there are plenty of studies that show that that lowers heart rate and makes the horse more relaxed. So it's quite a valuable primary reinforcer. And if you say the word good boy and then, then rub him at the wither or scratching there rather than patting, because patting's not very, or it's not reinforcing actually. There's studies that have looked into patting have shown no reinforcement at all. Whereas if you scratch, there is some reinforcement. So saying good boy, then a scratch after he does something that you wanted him to do is also a valuable one. And then there's also clicker training where you can use either voice, say good boy again, or the clicker you know, a handheld sort of Bertie Beetle type clicker where you click just before you give food. And so you click at the moment the horse gives the right answer. So, for example, I had a horse this morning that was nervous in the stable. So we target trained the horse in the stable. So we get a target, which is just, in this case, it was just a, um, a plastic bag. And um, when the horse touched the plastic bag, I clicked and then gave food and very quickly the horse learns to reach forward and touch the bag wherever it is, up high, down low, anywhere, and you're actually putting in place the relationship between the click and the food. Mm -hmm. And you always give the food after the click, that's important. You can use it as a tool then for training all sorts of things that are hard to train through pressure. So knowing both forms of reinforcement is a really important thing to do. And then finally, the classical conditioning part is just simply how the horse learns a cue. So, for example, when you say good boy, that's using classical conditioning that's associated with the food. If you say the word back and then you tap him with the stick for him to go back, the word back becomes classically conditioned. So classical conditioning evolved as a predictive behavior so that the animal would learn to gain control of his environment by learning that, for example, bird sound means here comes a predator or this particular visual signal means he comes food. So it's just learning cues and hints and signals. That, that's what classical conditioning is. And the way it's most effectively done is if the hint comes, the cue comes first. And then the last one, shaping is not some a learning mechanism, but it's just a process of building a response whereby you choose the most basic thing to reward first. So you want to pick his leg up and you just simply reward him just moving his leg up a little bit. And when he does it quite reliably, then you start upping the stakes and you start rewarding him for lifting his leg progressively higher and higher or striking with it or holding it up in the air for a long time. Whatever you decide, but you, you can shape it and get a good outcome if you're careful to fill in all the spaces from the goal right down to the very first and most 
basic attempt. Mm. So that's pretty much about using burning theory effectively. Now, a lot of people train horses and may not understand some of these words. Do you find that good trainers that are training horses well, the horses are happy, are already using um, a lot of this learning theory without actually knowing the names of it and knowing um, maybe they're more practitioners than theorists and without actually knowing what they're doing, they're instinctively doing a lot of this anyway? Yes, yes, that's it. That's what good trainers do. That's why I developed my online course because good trainers are very few and far between and we have very good trainer, horse trainers in Australia riding and training horses at the highest levels of horse sports and, and many others as well and all throughout the world. But they do do these things and they use good timing, but they don't necessarily know what they're doing. And it's only when you point it out to them what they are actually doing that they realise that it's actually just putting the science to their actions. Mm -hmm. But the rest of us, and this is the reason I was saying I developed this course, was because we don't have the advantage of that innate ability or that, that whatever ability it is, it's probably more learned from role models or whatever in the early days, but we don't have that ability. So... We can teach them through teaching the language of learning theory, and and that's really effective. And I just think everybody benefits, even at the highest level. The most successful riders can do even better if they know these tools, because these tools are basically describing the neural wiring, you know, the wiring of the yes. brain of the animal mm -hmm. that you hijack when you train. Yep. All right, that's good, and and good to know that a lot of people are trying to be on the right track, but if they've just got that bit more of the theory, you know, and understanding behind them, it's going to uh, increase their ability even more. Now, just moving on to number three now, yeah, we've got right. training easy to discriminate signals. Yeah, okay. Well, this is a simple one. The first two that I've just described are the most lengthy. This is just really simple. and It just means make sure that of all the signals you have for the horse to do whatever you want to do, the whole range of behaviours from the beginning of your touching the horse with a lead rein through to riding it, just make sure that every signal is easy to discriminate. Mm -hmm. And you see, particularly, it's relevant for riding because when you ride a horse, if you think of where you use your leg and how you use it, there's often quite a bit of overlap and we expect the horse to know the answer. And so just thinking about your training and recognising that the signals need to be easy for him to discriminate as much as possible. Strangely, that is really possible with the way dressage is designed because it's so incredibly clever. It's a stroke of genius as it's evolved over the few hundred years that, you know, the way you should use your leg aids is to increase the ability of the horse to be able to discriminate. But many people, particularly riders that um, succeed very well, tend to have really blurry aids and then the horse gets the blame and the horse is confused. Stop. I need to interrupt this chat for a hot-off-the-press notification. That is, that the latest version of the book, 101 Careers in the Horse Industry, is now available, and the best news is that it's a free download. So if you work in the horse industry, if you have a plan to work in the horse industry and have a career in the horse industry, or if you know someone who plans to have a career in this fabulous industry, then this is an essential book for you to read now, and then keep as a reference as you progress through your career. With over 100 jobs to choose from, you'll probably find at least one that you'd happily do without being paid. So simply go to internationalhorsecollege.com, 
scroll down to the bottom of the page and click on the 101 careers in the horse industry button to receive your free career book. Imagine, maybe one day you could be a guest on Horse Chats. What sort of exercises would they use for the, um, you know, just to show that the aids are clear? I mean, just ones like, you know, and I'm thinking dressage, we might um, move the four legs over, move the hindquarters, the gates. Is that the sort of thing yeah, that you well, mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, you now it's very common. I try and get rid of it as much as I can, but it's very common for people to turn using their legs. Now, that would be okay if you didn't use your legs for anything else. But since people use their legs usually in the same place anyhow for go, and all the other things are from the go signal, you want to be able to discriminate the difference between going faster tempo or longer strides. Mm-hmm. And yet people use a leg in the same old place for going faster, up a gate, and even turning. And then wonder why the horse shies or you don't have as much control because all the signals are too overlapping. Yep. And how where people use the leg often, I ask them, and it's never a very good answer, um, <laughs> you know, because they use the leg for bending, they use the leg for faster, for upper gait, for going longer in the stride, for inciting canter and lateral movements. Now, most people do shift the leg back for those things, but that's a new site, which is a good thing. But it's just that you don't want to have any single leg pressure that means more than one thing. So to me, turning the horse is as simple as just a very light closing of the finger on one side to turn. Mm -hmm. And that's all it should ever be. And if you use your leg, I think you have to recognize that your legs are your go signal. You can use your leg straight after, but not during that rain signal. Because one will outcompete the other. Good, good. All right, now number four is shaping responses and movements. Yeah, now that's really what I was talking about in that learning theory one, that we just need to make sure we build responses from the start, from something easy for the horse to do that's Mm -hmm. likely to give the answer right up to the most complex refinement of the goal. So, for example, I'll use an elephant example because this is what I'm doing a lot of and it's quite complex is teaching an elephant to pick up a stick and give it to the rider on the back, the mahout who sits on the elephant's back. So in the very beginning, we just teach the elephant to touch the stick and we make it easy because we put sugar on the stick, you know, just the molasses. Mm-hmm. And of course the elephant wants to touch the stick. And if he does, we reward that. And then we reward him for raising, for holding the stick for a little bit longer once he's got a hold of it and for raising it higher and higher but not for going lower and we add the voice cue to that as well um, once at a certain stage of giving it to the nahus and releasing it. So there's quite a lot of steps, but if you're careful building that response, it's very doable. So it's the same for horses. You know, when you're building piaf, for example, or passage or anything complicated, you would just reward the slightest movement and then bigger and bigger. But plenty of people are unhappy with the you know, movement that's not quite the quality they're after in the, after in the end. Yet you, we should really be happy with it and just don't go backwards. Mm-hmm. Just keep going forwards and and reward it for being bigger. And that's where positive reinforcement can really help too, because you cannot train piaf passage from negative reinforcement from the whip tap anywhere near as well as you can by using the combined reinforcement, which is the use of the pressure and release with a food reward mm-hmm. because the trainer on the ground can see when it's 
high step and you can click for the high step and then the horse just is crazy about repeating it. I don't know why people don't use it more often. It's fantastic. <laughs> sometimes, uh, yeah, sometimes it's just a lack of understanding and it's it's broadening and giving people these principles so they've got a better understanding anyway, I think, isn't it? Yeah, and they get stuck in a time warp. You know, when the trainers around the world all inherited their training from someone who inherited it from someone, from someone, from someone. <laughs> so it's not really been informed by what we know about behavioural science and they could do so much better. One day this will happen. It'll be just common usage. And I mean, I already see it happening in the sense of the language. People, I remember when I first started writing about horse behavior years ago and I used the word response and saying horses give this response or that response. And I got so much anger from people saying you shouldn't be talking about responses or, you know, horses are willing to please animals and they do it for you. And I had to really, you know, wade through all of those arguments and win those battles. Mm, mm. Uh, for people to accept it. And now people commonly talk about responses. And so the language is gradually changing, and I'm really pleased to see it. And mm. I think one day, as people succeed with using these tools and recognize how valuable they are, because, I mean, they do in every other sphere. You, you use them with kids with disabilities and with kids with bad problem behaviors and with circus animals, and you can get all sorts of great behaviors out of it. So there's no reason why can't improve and dog trainers use it more commonly so mm-hmm. there's no reason why horse trainers can't catch up as well mm-hmm. all right now the next one is elicit responses one at a time so can you speak about how you know if we're eliciting responses one at a time and a horse can go out and do a very complicated dressage test you know where they're sort of moving in and out from piaf to passage and one-time changes and going into canter pirouette how quick can these responses be and what's the progress, the steps in training? How soon should the horse respond? So if you can talk a little bit about the timing when we talk about eliciting responses one at a time. Okay, well, so when you first train a young horse, you keep all of your requests quite separated. So the horse has got time to do it because he's still crawling through his memory and learning it. It's not a habit yet. But when these things become habit and the horse has been going for maybe a year or two, you get a lot quicker. And what has been shown in biomechanics is that animals are only receptive to a signal when they're in a swing phase, in other words, in the air. Mm-hmm. So if a horse is turning, for example, to the right, the most correct and most efficient time to ask him to turn is just as the right foreleg is about to leave the ground. And you can, of course, turn if you don't get that right, because one leg will be halfway off the ground, but it makes training less efficient and much slower. And, of course, if you reward a different leg for doing different things, you can already train the horse to turn where he lapses on one shoulder and drops a shoulder, and, and that's a problem. Or people even reward turns when the horse didn't turn his front leg, but turned his back leg, which is the wrong thing, and then the horse is quite confused. So back to that question about separation time it just gets closer and closer together and if you think of the beat of the rhythm so within walk you've got four beats in trot you've got two and in canter you've got three you should only ask an aid during one of those beats but you can ask straight after that beat another question so for example you can turn and after the right foreleg comes the left hind leg anyhow in the normal biomechanical gait and so you can say turn go with your left leg. But if you do it at the same time, you've asked two requests for two different actions. 
same time and one of them will be overshadowed mm-hmm. and that's what you don't want. Okay. And knowing that biomechanical thing really helps a lot. And when again you look at good trainers, you'll see that they do do it. Like Charlotte Dujardin's timing is impeccable. It's at the beginning of the swing phase. Now at the Global Dressage Forum in Denmark, I spoke to her about that and she was unaware that that's what she did. But she's just good at it. But if the rest of us are aware of when she uses it, maybe we should aim to be that good. Mm. And Mm. plenty of trainers have uh, been so good too. But many of them, you know, use their aids at the wrong time. I helped a, a disabled girl using her whip tap to get the horse going sideways because she had no legs. But her timing was poor. And so the horse then was getting angry. And then the horse is the one everyone thinks, oh, he's just a bit of a pig. But he's not. You're just asking at the wrong time. So asking at the right time and separating everything is important. And I often say to people, it's like words. You know, you can't pile all your words on top of one another. They're separated. So training and riding an animal is just like a musical instrument. But there are no chords and every note is asked one after the other. So it's like a symphony of requests. That's a good way to explain it. Yeah. You know, the musical instrument and just one note and one after the other after the other. Yeah. Yeah. And everything goes like that. There's not one single movement that you do on a horse in dressage that is not about one thing at one moment. You know, you can nudge the horse for a higher reach of his leg in piaf or passage, and you can also go with the range at the end of it for the next swing phase. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's such a valuable thing knowing that. There's a lot more, there are a few more complications with the biomechanics to increase efficiency, but it's amazing what you can do if you do it like that. Okay. All right. Now, the next one is only train only one response per signal. And you were talking a little bit about that before, you know, just with a pirouette or moving the front legs. Can you speak a bit more about that number six, train only one response per signal? Yeah. I mean, it just simply means, again, as I mentioned, and see, this is what uh, we're refining these principles. We're going to cluster all of those eventually into, mm-hmm. this is our next project, yep. into a group of a principle about the aid. But it is important for people to recognise that you you just want one signal for each response. You can have many different signals, but you can't have many different responses. So, you know, if you squeeze the horse with your leg, it must mean go forward, go faster, go whatever. Mm -hmm. But you don't want it to have a whole array of other meanings. And where that's relevant are things like, for example, the reins. People make the horse round with the reins frequently. And if you do that, by just soaring on the mouth to make the horse pull his nose in. I mean, judges can usually, a good judge can see that that gives you false courage anyway, but uh, now your brakes, which are your reins, are now failing. So now you've got a horse that's liable to bolt or doesn't stop so well, he's really heavier and heavier. And the dressage horse typically gets very heavy, and I know they do because I've ridden many of them at high levels from people that I've taught all around the world. And they're often many kilos are the pressure to stop the horse. Mm-hmm. And that's madness because it makes the horse unsafe, but it also means that the horse is going to be quite stressed because no animal needs three kilograms in his mouth. You know, they never evolved for that. That's too much. We, we couldn't take it. Yeah. So yeah, one signal, one response, very simple, but really important. Okay. Okay. Oh, hang on a sec. Let me interrupt to let people know about the horse industry qualifications at onlinehorsecollege.com. 
If you have a look at the flexible options, there's online theory and the practical components can be completed by video or with a qualified expert in your area. That website again is onlinehorsecollege.com. Okay, thanks. All right, now we've got forming consistent habits and I think, you know, just as right as we try and form consistent habits, sort of self-explanatory, but do you want to talk a bit more about that? Yeah, it's just really what we do is engineer the response we want in training because that's the critical time. Once you've got it and it's a habit, it's fairly resistant to change. But in the beginning of forming good habits, we've got to really make sure that everything's consistent, that we train in the same place in the same kind of way. When we use a a certain location on the horse's body, for example, with our leg aid, it's got to be the same place each time, same type of voice command. If we use a voice command for anything that we want the horse to uh, move from on the ground. And even training in the same places helps a lot because horses are very context-specific creatures. So training the horse in the one place when you do PF, for example, will really speed up his learning than if you train in different places on different days. So mm-hmm. that is important. And just recognizing that you are building habits and you know, you're not asking, you know, when you use terms like, I'm asking the horse a question, it's not like if he's wondering about it himself, the answer, or, or, or thinking about it. He's just giving a reflex response when he's well trained. It's not a thinking thing, it's a totally reflexive when it's well trained. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, the next one, and you talked before about horses being heavy in the hand, but number eight is train persistence of responses in self-carriage. Yeah, I mean, that should be our goal in training because it makes it much more ethical and horse riders have to recognise that they're under the spotlight from all sorts of people, animal rights and whatever, and whatever the rider's opinion is, it doesn't matter. The people who will dictate whether or not people can do these things to animals will be the public and the voice is going to be through even strong voices like animal rights. Now, I'm not an animal rights advocate, but I'm a much more animal welfare person where I think that we can use animals but use them ethically and to the best of our abilities. So to me, the self-carriage thing just simply means that we need to just whisper to the horse with an A, like it should be only a few hundred grams and they just closing the fingers and you get the answer. And it's and the same for the legs. And therefore, if you give the reins away, the horse should not change his outline. And I mean only for a couple of steps. He shouldn't change his outline or his uh, line. You know, he shouldn't become crooked or drift. And he shouldn't change his speed, go faster or slower or do something like that if you release the reins. Obviously, if you release the reins for a little bit longer than just two strides, his neck will lengthen and you want that but he still should keep the same speed and the same straightness. And the same is true if you take your leg off the horse. That should not mean slow down, and many horses are constantly spurred, so they should be definitely knocked down for that in, in dressage. But it, to me, the self-carriage thing means that you can take your leg off and the horse, again, stays exactly the same in his outline, in his rhythm, and in his straightness. And that's really ethically good for the horse. So. I often say to people, if you tell me you've trained a bird to sit on your arm, you've got to let go of its wings. Because if you're still holding his wings, you you haven't trained it. That's called wrestling or something else, but it's not training. And so riders should really be forced to prove whatever they do, and you can even do it in the gallop, that you can release the range and the horse stays in the speed. That's perfect training, and that's really what we should aim for. If we really want happy horses and horses that 
are secure and don't shy and all of those things. This, that's the answer to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if a dressage rider is riding and the, the people that don't know think, Gee, that rider's just sitting there and that horse is doing all the work. Really, that's what dressage is all about, isn't it? That the rider just sits there, looks like it's doing nothing. Yeah, yep. It is. And that's the importance of a, of a very good position. It's so valuable because when you have a good position and you go with the flow and each gait has different characteristics under your seat and the feel of the belly under your leg is a bit different. So it's, it's an incredible skill. Mm-hmm. But great riders at the higher levels of dressage tend to have those abilities. I'd say most riders at Grand Prix have those abilities in dressage and in high levels of eventing, etc. And that's what we need because if the horse does anything and pulls on the reins and your shoulders or your arms shoot forward a little bit, you've basically rewarded that response. So the aim of good position is really, in my mind, is to let the horse do what he does and go with the flow with your body and don't interfere Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that... Yeah, the position's really important to to sit there and let the horse do his work. And you, your body does work too, but it goes with the flow of the horse's back and biomechanics. Yep. All right, now we're going on to number nine, and this is avoid and disassociate flight responses because they resist extinction and trigger fear or fear problems. This can be really dangerous, these flight responses. There's a lot of horses that can't live a normal life and, you know, go to the knackery, get put down, are taught to, you know, got a really bad reputation and been uncontrollable. What can we do here to stop or, you know, avoid those flight responses? Yeah, well, that's a good question because if we abide by all of these principles, we're less likely to be poking the bear, so mm-hmm. to speak. You yep. know, we'd be less likely to trigger fear. Yep. And if we don't do these stupid things, like, for example, if the horse runs from fear, let him run as if it's a good idea, we need to recognize we should do a downward transition and teach him that running is not a response from that. Because when you do allow it, you are condoning it and you're actually forming, you're reinforcing the wrong behavior. So we have to be very careful about those things. So bucking, rearing, bolting, shying, they're all dangerous. You know, the serious injury rate is massive for horse riding. It's like one serious injury for every 350 hours of contact. Mm. That's 20 times higher than motorcycling. The death rate's one death for every million head of population in the Western world. So we need to be really careful about those things. And in terms of bucking, for example, riding the horse through the buck might be fine if you're a, you know, a FEI event rider or a show jumper or a buck jumper. But for the rest of the world, it's not. Mm. And it doesn't teach him what to do that's correct. You're just allowing that repertoire to be incorporated into his behavior pattern from that aid, whatever it was, induce the buck. Yes. Or even whatever stimulus in the environment. So having good breaks is important. So teaching kids, for example, on ponies, that when the horse does a, any kind of buck, go woo with the reins and then reapply the question. Mm-hmm. And that's why you need good breaks. Yep. Yep. And so I encourage kids to do things, you know, to do to practice their transitions downward as well as upward. Yes. But not to go through this silly idea of thinking you can just ride him through the buck. In a mild pig route, maybe it's of no consequence, but at a certain point, it's highly reinforced. And the thing about any of those flight response behaviours like bucking, rearing, bolting and shying is that it, they're learned much faster than any other behaviour. So, And they resist extension. In other words, they once they've got them, you can't actually get rid of them. They're always going to be lurking there somewhere in the background. 
Mm-hmm. You can superimpose other behaviours over, so it's very hard for them to be reignited. But it's way better to just train properly from the start. And if he does something you don't want, go whoop. Yep. So you're in, you're saying, no, not appropriate. And mm-hmm. apply the aid again. Good boy, well done. It's a good answer. You definitely disassociate flight responses. Yep. They're really problematic. And the more, the, more time the horse being stressed, mm. the more time he will, he mm. will be stressed. And it's not just adrenaline, which is a short-term flight response hormone. It's also cortisol, which can maintain tension for ages and end up producing a horse's tense for a long period of time and very difficult to retrieve from that position. Okay, yep. And really that's one where, you know, the young horses or the the horses that that are potentially a problem should really be going to an experienced person who's well-versed in the training principles for horses. Yeah, that's right. I think it's also where we need to be very careful about our own abilities and you know, there's certain horses that are going to be very good for professionals, but there's also horses that are not, that, um, those same horses might not be good for leisure riders. Mm. And mm. so horses should bite off more than they can do because the modern day jumper and the modern day dressage horse is much more uh, sensitive than the old fashioned ones and is harder to train and ride. And you've got to sit out some behaviours that maybe are hard to sit out. So we really have to be honest about what's appropriate for the rider. And mm-hmm. tell them. Yep. Yep. So the very last principle, by the way, number ten. Mm. I presume you'll ask. That yeah. Well, I was going, I'm going yeah. to say that you know about the demonstrate minimum levels of arousal sufficient for training. But yes, please go on and talk about that. Yeah, because because it's really similar to the one before. Mm-hmm. But actually, we we highlighted that because there's a there's certain threshold of arousal that in terms of flight response, for example, where the horse needs to be in that zone to learn. If he's too calm and too relaxed, he's not going to learn much, certainly for certain types of activities and movements. And by the same token, above that threshold, his learning wanes as well. So the performance of the horse diminishes as it becomes too tense. But there's a little window, you know, a little threshold for each horse that we need to recognize for optimal learning, and we need to be careful not to go past that. And so for me, it means things like don't overtrain. For example, I do this with the with the horses and also with my work with the elephants is to try and achieve three good repetitions in a row, and that's all, just three good ones in a row. And that's the very beginning of habit formation. And then giving them a couple of minutes rest and then aim for another three in a row, and this time the three in a row come much faster. And then give them a two-minute rest to get the heart rate down again and get some blood and, you know, some glucose and to the brain. Mm-hmm. And then after the third and final set where you ask for three good ones in a row and you will frequently get them very, very fast, if not immediately. And then that's all you need to do for that day. And if you do four sets, we know that it doesn't make it any quicker than three. So you can be much more efficient in training and therefore you won't get the horse too aroused by overdoing it. Because quite often when people are overdoing things and Doing, you know, overdoing and overdoing. If they had a heart rate monitor, they would see that the horses started to get quite stressed. Yep. And um, even if he doesn't show it behaviorally, physiologically, they become stressed. And that's the most important because what you can see is one thing, but how the horse feels is more shown up by physiological characteristics, heart mm-hmm. rate, etc. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we just need to make sure we train with minimum levels of arousal and keep the horse in a comfortable place. Okay. 
All right, that's good. Look, I think that the summary of the 10 training principles of horses has been very informative for people that want to broaden their learning and go into this a little bit more. We've got Dr. McLean's books. We can get the link through to that and his website and some other information that he's got as well. I run an online course, I should say, too, because quite a lot of people are doing this course and even people who've read the books Mm. find it amazing how much more efficient their work becomes once they do the course because Mm -hmm. it's full of quizzes and assessments. Okay. And um, that, that really helps a lot. Yep. All right. So there's my plug. <laughs> All right, we'll uh, we'll put those details on uh, that link. But if you want to just what what is the name? It's esi-education.com. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you very much for talking to us today, Andrew. Hopefully, we'll catch up again sometime soon. This is a great opportunity for people to just go a little bit more into the understanding of training their horses and how they train. And a lot of people do. We're on the right track, but you know, it just gives you a little bit more of an understanding. And uh, for those people that might need a bit more information, I think that's good as well. So thank you. You're welcome. I think with education, everybody can do better. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, hopefully we'll talk to you sometime soon. Thanks a lot, Glennis. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. If you've enjoyed this chat, then please comment, rate, and subscribe. If you'd like any changes or recommendations for guests, then please contact us through horsechats.com. And while you're online, have a look at the government-accredited courses at internationalhorsecollege.com. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Remember that our comments and instructions are general in nature and do not take into consideration your individual horses or your individual ability and circumstances. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave your comment below. 